The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything that you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The all-new Hyundai Santa Fe's features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, standard third-row seating, available dual wireless charging pads, ensure that you can take on any adventure. Available H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on the dirt trails and kick up some mud. Standard third-row seating so your whole family can experience the thrill together. Available dual wireless charging pads so no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead phone. I've been so pumped to take a couple of friends with our road bikes to some of the trails nearby, and now I can bring the entire crew, my dog, and all of our gear with that third row. Learn more about the new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Welcoming into the show, we've got our guy, Ryan McDonough. We're going to be asking him some of the inside baseball questions on the draft. I have not spoken ever to Ryan, so I'm happy to meet you. I'm super excited. Uh, former GM of the Phoenix Suns, spent a decade working for the Boston Celtics, where he was everything from an international scout to assistant GM to my man, Danny, Trader Danny Ainge, currently our Odyssey basketball insider. That's where I'm from. Odyssey basketball insider. Cannot wait to ask him a ton of questions. How are you doing, sir? Hey, hey, Tristan, I'm doing well. I want to because there's a lot of people doing mocks. I'm not really too interested in in like debating who's going to go where or who's the best fit where. I'm really interested in the process of of drafting and just kind of how it all works from someone who's been there and has been there with a bunch of different teams. For, first and foremost, there's this big debate about team needs versus best available. What is your stance on on that? And is that a trend that sort of changes over time? And and what are some examples of of ways that door one works and doesn't work and door two works and doesn't work? Yeah, really good question. I, I think the first thing you have to ask as a franchise is if player X in the draft is better, and he probably won't be better immediately. Obviously, these, this, these things take some time. But if, they, if he has a chance to be better than anybody on our roster, we should probably draft player X because we can move the other guys on the roster, you know, if, if he's that good, if he has a chance to be a special transcendent player. Um, now, you know, there, there are some arguments the other way. I mean, one of the things that we get criticized for, and you know, I certainly had some involvement with, was uh, DeAndre Ayton with the number one pick in, in Phoenix. Um, thought process at the time, organizationally, right or wrong, and keep in mind I was fired the following preseason, so there may have been some disagreement, but uh, was that we had a young backcourt star in Devin Booker, offensively gifted, um, you know, struggled a little bit defensively and rebounding. He certainly improved in those areas, but the thought process was uh, Devin in the backcourt, Ayton in the frontcourt, uh, Mikael Bridges, who we later acquired on the wing, um, you know, people can nitpick, and they certainly have, about the Luka Doncic versus Aiton pick, and I understand that, and I, you know, I, I take responsibility for that. Um, obviously, the Suns were in the finals a year ago and won 64 games, so so that's why it's so hard, Tristan. That's why I think people on the fan side or even some of the media side don't realize as much. You are picking for a team. You know, you're not just picking in a vacuum individually. And when people go back and do redrafts and things like that, um, the context and the roster at the time is important because, you know, the reality is once we get in October and training camp starts, you have to hand the coach the ball and say, figure out how to play these guys and put together a functional team. So, uh, you know, generally speaking, it's the most talented player. You'd want that. But uh, there is some context and nuance to that as well. 
Uh, I wasn't planning on asking you this, but I think one of the greatest steals in that draft was Mikael Bridges. Can you can you give me just a little bit of insight into how that all went down if outside of what's already kind of been written about? Yeah, it was a really unusual deal, um, Trista, just because Philadelphia 76ers, who had the 10th pick, drafted Bridges with the intention of keeping him. Uh, yeah, I was there for that. that yeah, we, I was we, at we, Barclays. Okay, and, and you know Mikel's history and what it was like at Barclays. His mother worked for the franchise. He won multiple national championships at Villanova. He's a Philadelphia kid. And it seemed, you know, on paper, at least to me, like a very good fit between Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. But but Philly was big game hunting, I think. And we had a draft pick, um, a future first round pick that we got in 2015 for Goran Dragic from Miami that was unprotected. And then we had the 16th pick in the 2018 draft as well. So it's a bit unusual because you know I called Philly's front office. Uh, we were chasing picks up in that range because one of the things that I, I think people don't talk about enough, Trista, is there are tiers and gaps in the draft. And what I mean by that is, you know, the value of, of each player to the next is not always even, right? Sometimes it is close. Uh, sometimes there's a gap between players. Sometimes there's a gap between tiers of players. So that's what teams do. It's there's mo- like most teams use a tiering system rather than let's just rank them one to 60 or 100 or whatever. So um, with us, we, we felt the, the, the group of players in that late lottery, um, you know, say eight to 14 range, were going to be significantly better than who was available or we thought was going to be available at 16. So anyway, so long story relatively short, um, Philly drafted Bridges. Uh, I was on the phone with them, said, is there anything we can do? They said no at the time and said, okay, we're coming back at 16. We like Bridges a lot. We'd give you some value. We'd give you 16 plus and we can discuss what the plus is, but uh, are there players, you know, you guys are potentially interested in? And they said, yeah, one in particular. Obviously, they, they didn't tell us who it was. So Fast forward to 14, 15, picking that range. Uh, we re-engage with them. And Zaire Smith, the forward out of Texas Tech, was still on the board, who they liked. Um, obviously, Zaire's had some injury issues and other health issues that have derailed his career. Um, but that plus the the future Miami pick, that was how that deal got done. And, and this is funny in hindsight, especially given how well Mikel's done and how well the team has done, Trista. But I wasn't really looking forward to calling the kid his mom, who were excited yeah. about being in Philly. His mom works for the franchise and saying, I know – you thought you were going to stay at home, but what do you think about heading a couple thousand miles to the Southwest and becoming a Phoenix Sun? That's wild. Another thing I think that people are interested in is, and I guess the context around it are players like Shaden Sharp, players like Jaden Hardy. So two different paths, right? Both of those guys were consensus lottery picks. Shaden doesn't end up playing a minute for Kentucky. Jaden Hardy goes to the G League. Shaden Sharp's kind of like a wild card in terms of his draft hasn't hasn't fell. I mean, we're not really sure. It, maybe he's top five. Maybe he slips to mid, maybe post lottery. But Jaden Hardy seems to have fallen off a cliff in terms of consensus draft picks. Is, is should players that are already deemed Patrick Baldwin Jr. is another one deemed to be a, a lottery pick? Is there some sort of debate now on in terms of? whether they should actually play in college or go to the G League or go the Shaden Sharp path? Well, I, I speak from a you know, former executive's perspective. I think they should play somewhere. I, I think it, it's, it's one thing to try to manipulate draft stock and you know, potentially hide you know, things like that. But at the end of the day, as you know, Tristan, in fact, in just a couple of weeks, they're going to be off on a court in Las Vegas with ESPN and NBA TV and all these groups there, and they're going to have to perform. So yeah. I, I think, especially as a teenager, Taking a year off and not playing is not something I would advise. Uh, now, I, I really like what the NBA has done with the G League Ignite. That was one of my 
uh, criticisms of the league or things I think the league could have done better earlier instead of letting, and I'm going back a ways here, but instead of letting Brandon Jennings go play in Italy and Emmanuel Moutier go play in China, uh, recently LaMelo Ball go play in Australia, uh, you know, a, a lot of us um, executives in the league were saying, why don't we keep these guys here? It's, it's better um, from a fan and marketing perspective. It's better for the players developmentally. It's easier to recruit and evaluate them. And this is what the players want. Those guys, did, you know, 18, 19 years old, didn't want to go live overseas by themselves and, and things like that. So I, I bring it up because I think the league's done a terrific job with the G League Ignite. Um, just look at last year's draft. I believe they had two of the top seven yeah. picks. Uh, Jalen Green, who I think is going to be a, a star among the scoring leaders in the NBA someday. And then Jonathan Kaminga, who, you know, a talented young developmental player for the Warriors, got some run in the playoffs on, on, on the NBA champion. Um, and this year, Dyson Daniels will be another yeah. lottery pick. Um, so, I, so I think it's, you know, it's good to have options. Um, you know, Shaden Sharp situation was unique. And, and, and the final, I, I guess, point I'll make on, on Shaden, Trista, is that he is the kind of player as an executive that keeps you up at night. And what I mean by that is it scares you to take him because you don't have a body of work. And it also scares you to pass on him because of the talent. Uh, you know, he's talented enough. His highlight film is incredible. That that kid could end up being the best pick in the draft. But that, that's why it's scary and hard to be an executive at this point. It'd be impossible to say either way where his career ends up. Yeah, and Dre. And I, I would imagine that as a GM, job security makes that decision-making tree a little bit more complex. I'm curious, why do some guys skyrocket after the tournament has, has been over and we've gotten through the combine, we've gotten through team workouts. So it, it seems like nothing's really happened, right? And you got, take a guy like Matherin. Matherin was like in the in this like, 11 to 15 range and then all of a sudden now even though he looked awesome at Arizona went to the tournament looked good there too to go why why do some guys fall significantly and what why do some guys skyrocket really good question and that's one of the things where as evaluators you have to remind yourself and keep going back to the film because you know at the end of the day the games are a little bit different college or international versus the NBA but it's still five on five basketball and after the guy's season's over, he's not really playing five-on-five five basketball. He's doing the right. individually. You know, they do a little five-on-five five there. But the recent trend, which is unfortunate, is the top players don't play there in the five-on-five five action. Um, and then the workouts, a lot of them, especially for the top prospects now, are individual one-on-zero. Um, so that's one of the things. As an executive, um, you have to manage expectations. Frankly, it can be really dangerous, especially when the people who don't do this year-round, uh, like your coaches, your head coach in particular, he has a strong voice, strong personality, and your owner, especially, um, yeah. you, know, you see a guy in an individual workout or, um, you know, as you know, Trista, anybody can, in one hour workout can look great or look horrible. It's not really reflective of who they are, um, but they can just have a great day or a horrible day. That's just, you know, human nature. So that's why you have to rely on your process. Um, that's why you have to go back to the film and watch him play in games. Uh, and then also, you know, bake in some of the offseason stuff with the combine, with the individual workouts, and, and hope you make the right decision. But uh, to answer your question, that is why. And, and I, I always get a kick out of when somebody says, you know, a guy's stock is rising or falling or this or that. Well, in reality, it, it hasn't gone anywhere. Nothing has happened until tomorrow night. It's just, you know, you know, media articles and things like that seem to manipulate players up and down. Uh, the teams just set their boards probably today as far as who they're going to draft. So and anything that happened before today is, I don't say irrelevant, but I, I think, you know, it gets more traction on the media side than it does when you're working for a team. Wait, so the draft board gets created only the day before the draft? 
Usually you do it pretty late. Um, you know, probably the week of the draft. I'd be surprised if any teams yeah. did it well before this week. Um, because as you look around the league, um, teams are still working out players as recently as, you know, Monday or, or Tuesday. Uh, I don't think we have any, you know, on Wednesdays we sit here about 48 hours, excuse me, 24 hours before the draft. And the NBA does want the players to come to New York earlier now to do the media circuit and be available yeah. uh, prior to draft night. Um, but yeah, when I, when I was in Boston in particular, because of the proximity to New York City, uh, the draft is, you know, either Madison Square Garden or now the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, we would try to get guys in Wednesday morning. I mean, wow. you know, the day before the draft and say, look, we know you're headed to the Northeast. We, we you know, we have to do some recruitment. We love your guy. Get them in here. It'll be the last workout. We'll take good care of them. We won't keep them long. We just want to see them one more time, and then we'll get them on the shuttle down to New York, um, you know, to, to be available for the draft. So um, that, that's why teams wait. And then also the medical piece of it, the intel. You want to go over that with your uh, trainers, doctors, people like that. One more time, Trista, just to make sure, because um, that's the other thing that keeps you up at night. One of the things as an executive, you draft a guy who's not medically sound. He breaks down. Uh, that's probably one of the quicker ways to get fired. If, if, you, if you drafted somebody, especially if you should have known and you didn't do your job as far as knowing whether the guy was medically fit or not. You mentioned ownership and a bunch of different voices uh, in the room. Can you kind of highlight just what it's like on draft night in a war room, all of the different people that are sounding off and, and kind of what your experience is like for people who haven't really had insight to that? Yeah, it's certainly different with different franchises. I did probably 10 or 11 drafts in Boston and then five or six uh, in Phoenix. Um, you know, I, I, ideally what you'd want is the top decision makers in the room, uh, your head of basketball, whether the president or GM, uh, his or her, you know, top lieutenants. Uh, and then same with the head coach, uh, you, you know, the top um, men and women who work under the head coach, uh, and then your owner. And, and really that's it. I mean, you, you don't want a lot of, you know, theatrics and things like that. A lot of teams have draft parties, uh, in both places in Boston and Phoenix. We did a good job of keeping that separate because, you know, you have to concentrate and, and, and be prepared to pivot for trades like the one we just discussed from Mikel Bridges. Um, you know, you have to be prepared, obviously, to, uh, really do anything. And what I mean by that is you, you want to move up in the draft. Do you want to move down in the draft? Uh, do you want to move out of the draft? Do you want to trade the pick for a player? Uh, do you want to trade the pick for a future pick? You, you know, all, all that uh, happens in real time and is fluid. And then you also, even as the draft is going, sometimes have to be prepared in case there's a slider. So, to think, you know, a guy you didn't think would be there, all of a sudden, you know, gravity sets in, the guy starts coming down, the player's nervous, his agent's calling you, and then you have to kind of go through your process to make sure you're prepared, you, you know, if he's on the board uh, when it comes up. So, so really, the most important people generally are the head of basketball, the head coach, and the owner. And, uh, you know, the ownership involvement depends on the franchise and how involved or uninvolved that guy wants to be. How how many or what percentage of NBA teams have extremely uh, vocal and hands on owners during draft night? I'd say a growing percentage, honestly, I, I think as franchise values escalate. And some new money comes into the league, um, you, know, you know, a lot of tech and uh, a younger group of owners, I guess. I, I think some, you know, talking to guys who've done the job longer than I have, uh, you know, some of the old guard owners, frankly, wouldn't come around for draft night. They just, you know, get get a call or you send them an email, maybe a fax back in the day, say, here are the guys we're looking at. Uh, you know, you try to prep them for we might take this guy or that guy. OK, sounds good. Um, that is getting, you know, less and less uh, standard, I, I guess. So they're more involved. So that's one of the challenges, you know, from a front office perspective or coaching perspective, I think from any job, right? Managing out, managing the boss and his his expectations. Um, but yeah, I don't think that's a trend that's going anywhere. Uh, let me put it this way. When the average franchise is selling for one and a half to two plus billion dollars and, and guys write a check at that level, I think they're going to want to continue to be involved. 
That's really interesting, uh, especially considering I talked to somebody within the Golden State organization and I asked them and I said, why do you guys consistently draft so well and find value wherever you're at in the board? And and they said, well, I think the main reason and, and they said a lot of people get it confused, like that there are certain teams that don't have great scouting departments or talent evaluation departments. There's pretty high level of, of, of talent evaluation all over the league. But it really is a matter of whether an owner decides they want to allow uh, their dis- th- those decision makers and evaluators to have agency to make those decisions. And they said, you know, Joe Lacob has really given us a lot of agency to make those decisions. Um, what's it like when, you know, maybe you see a, a, a decision one way and an owner disagrees? Well, it's a challenge for sure. And, and I'd reiterate that. I've heard the same about Joe Lacob. Um, you know, he, he's an owner who's very involved in the process. Obviously, he's, he's good at it. His team's been in the finals six of the last eight years and won four championships. Uh, and I give him a lot of credit, Trista, because as, as much as, you know, any majority owner I can think of off the top of my head, he works. I mean, he, he goes around, he scouts games, he watches films. Yeah, he, he does. He loves this stuff. He loves it. Yeah. So where you get in trouble, you probably see where I'm going with this, but yeah. that's where you get in trouble is when a guy does not do all that and, and bases it off of, um, you know, pre-draft workouts or highlight tapes or things like that and thinks he knows, well, ultimately he's the boss. So does he know? I, you know, and, and so it's hard. I, I think like anybody when you disagree with uh, you know somebody you're working for, you need to be persistent and make your points and be respectful, uh, but also know when to relent, right? Because ultimately, um, you know, at the end of the day, unless you own a company or you're you're the CEO or whatever, you work for somebody. So you have to you know be, pick your spots. Uh, you hope that the, the the relationship you built up and the process you have is sound. Uh, maybe if you have a track record of a success doing something, you can fall back onto that. But um, yeah, I think anybody who's disagreed with the boss, uh, you know, goes through the same calculation. When do I push? How hard do I push? And when I realize it's not going to go my way or not likely to go my way, do I do I let go of the rope and relent, even if I don't agree with the ultimate decision? I don't know if this happens at all, but when I um, disagree with someone for whatever decision, if I'm in a collaboration or I'm working for someone and I allow them to be the one and it does not work out or vice versa, it's pretty hard to not be like, well, you see, like, Frank Kaminsky really probably shouldn't have gone like whatever the, what was he, 13, 12, maybe? Um, I I, I say no so quickly because I know who was the 13th pick in the 2015 draft. Oh, yeah, it was Devin Booker, wasn't it? So I think he came, I think uh, Frank Kaminsky ended up going right before Devin Booker, didn't he? I think Frank went ninth or tenth. Yeah, ninth. Range maybe eleven. Uh, the direct pick before Devin was his college teammate Trey Lyles um, yeah. with the Utah Jazz, and and this is why it's so hard. I mean, Dennis Lindsay and his staff did a phenomenal job of building the Jazz when he was there. They drafted Donovan Mitchell in the late lottery and yeah. Rudy Gobert uh, in the late first round. Uh, they had also drafted Rodney Hood, who played well at the time. Uh, you know, late teens, early twenties there. So they had a perimeter heavy team. They yeah. wanted a front court guy. They went with Lyles over Booker. Uh, in a vacuum, that pick doesn't look great. But then you look at the totality of their draft. Like, yeah, Utah, you know, they've been one of the best teams in the league the last few years. So so that's why the job is hard, uh, Tristan. And obviously one of the frustrations, as you can imagine, and players get this too, but as an executive, as a head coach, um, you know, for certain members of uh, fans in particular, certain members of the media, just pick it a mistake, you know, pick it a mistake rather than looking at the totality of it and saying, okay, it's, it's a hard job. And nobody, literally, whether you're Red Auerbach or Jerry West, everybody's going to make mistakes. Uh, you know, the guys who do it better make fewer mistakes and adjust to their mistakes quicker than everybody else. So I heard this story yesterday, and it, I believe it was Mark Stein talking about uh, the Dirk 
uh, the Dirk uh, draft pick. And he was talking to the Mavericks organization and asked him how Dirk did. And they basically said that, that Dirk had a horrible workout and um, that this other kid, I forget who it was, really excelled. And, you know, it was disappointing because they liked Dirk and, and all of this. Obviously, they end up loving Dirk. That was a complete lie. And Dallas, uh, the Mavericks organization said to Mark, don't listen to us at all before draft because it's all lies. Um, can you talk a little bit about the whole disinformation campaign that goes on pre-draft from team to team in the media, how, you know, how front offices use media to sort of like take you off the scent and who's the best at it uh, in the league right now? Yeah, all, all really good questions, uh, Trista. Look at it this way. If you work for a team, why would you want anybody to know what you're doing, right? Yeah. You, you wouldn't want anybody to know what you're doing because there goes your competitive advantage. And, and in this draft that's coming tomorrow night, I think the Orlando Magic have done a good job injecting some uncertainty into the process. I mean, most people think they're going to take Jabari Smith, the forward out of Auburn. I think that's who they'll take. I wouldn't be shocked if they take Chet Holmgren personally. Uh, now we've seen on the betting markets, and I, and I know obviously given your multiple gigs with Odyssey, you follow the betting markets closely. Paulo Bancaro has skyrocketed. He was a distant third on the betting markets. Now he's moved up uh, just behind Chet Holmgren in, in, into that number three slot, close to number two. Um, so, I mean, they're doing a good job of that. Now we'll see ultimately all that matters to the franchise is whether they draft the right guy and how he develops. Um, but yeah, if you're Orlando, for example, you want people thinking you could take any of those three guys or maybe even Jaden Ivey because if a team falls in love with a player, you don't want them to say, okay, well, uh, we know Orlando's going to take Jabari Smith, for example. Now let's just talk to Oklahoma City at two and try to trade for two because we know who won it. You know, you want all your options to be open. Um, so, so that's why it happens. And, uh, yeah, the disinformation, it, it's easy on the team side to spot a lot of times because when you see stuff about your own team, you say, well, that's not true. You, you know, it's, you, you know, obviously, when, when you're living it, when you're doing it. And uh, so, so what I would say, um, just from a general perspective for your fans is consider the sources, right? I, I mean, some of the NBA's top newsbreakers, you and I know a lot of them, but Bader Morjanowski, Chamsharani, some of these guys say it's probably pretty legitimate. Uh, if it's some guy with an egg with six followers on Twitter, you probably don't want to listen to that person if it is a person and not a bot. Um, so that, that's the challenge. You, you know, teams will use it uh, to throw, you know, throw out smoke screens. Uh, agents will use it to try to, as, as you talked about, players rising or falling, especially try to spike their guy's value right before draft time and prevent a free fall on the other side of it. Um, so as far, as far as teams, honestly, I think just about every team does it. Um, and then, you know, one of the new trends is interesting. I guess this is more related to free agency, but I was thinking of today is one of the things we're seeing now, Trista, is teams using the media to set the expectations for free agency, right? So it's, for example, a recent example in the last 24 hours, PJ Tucker opts out in Miami with the heat. Uh, we see that uh, the Philadelphia 76ers will offer P.J. Tucker a three-year, $30 million deal and that the Miami Heat better be prepared to, you know, pay that amount. So, so that's kind of the that's way That's coming the from the agent side, yes. That's got to that? be coming from the agent side, right? I think it's both. Honestly, I, I, th I think a lot of it probably is the agent side. Uh, you know, he's doing what's best for his player. That's his job. But a lot of it's the team side, too, where if, you, if you're P.J. Tucker, so I, I didn't know that team was interested and at that level. Let me start. I was thinking about maybe re-signing in Miami, you know, comfortable here. We just went to the Eastern Conference Finals, almost 
played in the NBA Finals at South Beach, no state income tax, all those kind of things. But Philly's interested. Well, they have James Harden and, and Joel Embiid. And, you know, so that's kind of the way the game is played now, as Draymond calls it, the new media. And I, I don't think that's a trend that's going to change, not only with players, you know, doing media like Draymond and CJ McCollum, uh, but with teams and agents and even players leaking stuff to try to manipulate situations the way they want it to go. What percentage of what we've seen rumor-wise – specifically this year, considering it's a very wide open draft, would you consider to be uh, false? Oh, more than half. You, you know, you know I, I think, you know, a lot more than half. That's a lot. Um, but because, you know, honestly, one of the things that's funny with um, NBA teams is they'll spend just about all their time talking about what every single other team's going to do. And then, you know, when you ask somebody, what are you guys going to do? It's, well, you know, I'm not sure. You know, cause, cause there's no reason to tell another team what you're going to do, you know? So, so I think that perpetuates it. Um, you know, where kids like the game telephone where you tell the person next to you and then they tell the next person. And, and by the time it got to the end of the line, the message was kind of similar, but like pretty different. That's kind of like the NBA where, you know, you hear this team is interested in this guy or may do this. And, and then it gets, you know, parroted and maybe changed and tweaked a little bit. And by the time sometimes it hits the media or it gets back to you, you say, wait a minute, that's not what I, it's kind of like what I heard, but, but different. So there is a lot of that in NBA front offices. And that's why I think in some ways, honestly, it's a little bit of a waste of time to do all that. If you're an NBA executive or with a team, just, you know, focus on what you're doing, the drafts, the film, the trades, don't worry about it, you know, and just rely on your direct conversations with other teams rather than what you read on Twitter or some of these uh, NBA gossip sites. If we're betting on the NBA draft, if you're in a state where you can bet, does it make sense to look at kind of the, the past decision-making lens of an organization and in terms of how they like to draft, how they like to construct a roster in terms of how they may actually select a good example that, that I, I guess I could use is like, there's a lot of chatter around Toronto last year, taking Jalen Suggs. But when you look at Masai Ujiri and what he likes to do, he likes to get these six, six to six, 10 guys that can switch everything that can also handle the ball with exception, obviously to Fred Van Fleet, which makes the Scotty Barnes pick make more sense. Yeah. Re really good question. And, and, and so, um, I don't want to say disregard what I said up until this point, but if there is a time, especially if you're betting it, to rely on NBA insiders, um, you know, you know, the, the elite NBA insiders, newsbreakers, it is in the next 24 hours from now up until the draft, because um, that was one of the things that, that I got, you know, for Odyssey, I think it was in 2020, um, the draft that they were going to take, the Chicago Bulls were going to take Patrick Williams with the fourth pick. I had a number of people tell me that. Uh, I think he would have gotten good value there in the betting markets because he was not a projected top four pick. Um, so I, I say, you know, pay attention to some of that like now, you know, the other 363 or four days, it's less relevant. But uh, generally, the mock drafts, uh, especially Jonathan Gavoni runs one for ESPN, are pretty accurate close to the draft. So I, I would pay attention to those. And then, yeah, to your point, the team history, uh, I'll give you another example. That's, um, you know, probably to me, the most interesting thing in the draft tomorrow night is the Sacramento Kings at four. They they have De'Aaron Fox on the roster, uh, Max Player. They drafted Davion Mitchell a year ago, which was controversial because at that time they had Tyrese Halliburton on the roster. They traded Halliburton, obviously, for Sabonis uh, with Indiana. Will they do it again? Will they draft Jaden Ivey again? He, he's the best player on the board, in my opinion. Maybe the best player to come out of this draft. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised, but I, I think there's maybe some value in a – if you can get those kind of odds. I don't know if you can, Trista, but like Jaden Ivey with the fourth pick. Not necessarily Jaden Ivey yep, two seconds ago, but you know, with the fourth pick, yep. uh, I think there's probably some good value there because I think he probably does go number four, whether that's Sacramento or another team swooping in by a trade. Uh, you were an international scout. I just watched The Hustle. 
uh, with Adam Sandler. <laughs> so I have a newfound appreciation for all the miles that you've logged in your life and all of the room service and places you've woken up and you don't even know where you are. Um, I am curious, based on your international experience, how uh, places and regions and styles of play go in and out of style. You talk about a bunch of NBL guys or guys from Australia in general like Giddy that have ripped things up early, you know, made an immediate impact. How does that that impact other like decision makings and how other players from that area and how teams evaluate them? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think if you go back 30 years, what the dream team started is really powerful and impactful. And you see that as an international scout. Uh, in fact, you know, look at the recent award winners uh, in the NBA, um, you know, two time MVP now Nikola Jokic from Serbia before that. Uh, Giannis, you, you know, born in Nigeria, raised in Greece, uh, maybe the best young player in the league. Luka Doncic from Slovenia, uh, Pascal Siakam, I believe he recently won most improved player from Cameroon. Uh, so it really is a, a worldwide game, you know, globally. We've talked about Dirk uh, on this show. We could talk about, you know, Yao Ming and other international players uh, over the last couple of decades as well. Um, so, so I think that's a good thing for the league. And, and I think, um, you know, one, one of the ways, honestly, that you see the rest of the world catching up to the USA and why it's so important to scout internationally is just watch Team USA play. This is not, you, you know, um, uh, Bird and Jordan and Magic and those guys beating Angola by 100 points in 1992. You know, these these international countries, a lot of the top ones are pretty good. You know, you watch Spain or, uh, you know, some of the top international teams. They, they really push the American guys. Um, so I, I think, you know, that'll continue. I, I think the next region, honestly, that, that the NBA is invested in is Africa. You know, where they have the Basketball Africa League. Um, you know, a lot of times, or most of the time, historically, the top African players, uh, like Serge Ibaka, for example, have left. They played in Europe, and then they come over to the U.S. Um, so the NBA is really trying to develop the African continent. But, yeah, if you're in that role, you're in the Adam Sandler international scouting role, uh, you better have your passport ready with the extra pages in that book to get, you know, more stamps. Uh, and you better get a lot of frequent flyer miles because it's not like you're just scouting the U.S. or just going to Europe like you could in the past. You're probably going to, you know, Oceania, they call it, New Zealand, Australia, Asia, and then probably sometime in, in, in the future, you're going to Africa as well. My Lord. I want to talk a little bit about, and I know you got to get out of here, but I got like three more, um, about teams that are looking to like trade their picks and they need immediate impact guys. A current role player, I'm thinking about Portland specifically, have promised Dame that they're going to retool uh, a lot of chatter about them trading that pick to get OG and Anobi or a John Collins. And, and the disinformation campaign now is alive and well that they're going to keep that seven pick. Um, help me understand why a team would go one direction. We're going to trade the pick uh, and get a, a current role player. That's, you know, we need to win now. And then they do an about face and they keep that pick. I think because Trista ultimately is an executive your job for the franchise is to do what's best given what's available, right? You can want to do whatever. I mean, every executive in the league would love to put together, uh, you know, a super team of all-stars at every position. That's obviously not realistic. Um, but, you know, a lot of times, like in life, the, the um, you, know, you can only make the decisions that are in front of you. You can't force something that's not there. So yeah. I think Portland probably does want to trade the num number seven pick. It seems like they have told Damian Lillard, to your point, that, um, you know, th this is not going to be – a long, drawn-out rebuild. He's in his 30s now. He's made a ton of money. He's an all-NBA player. He's going to the Hall of Fame someday. He doesn't have the patience for that. 
Yeah. Nor to be prudent for the Trailblazers to keep Lillard in a Blazers uniform if they're going to do that. You know, it makes right. sense to uh, to get young players and draft picks and things like that. Um, so that's but but the challenge is, you know, you don't want to trade the seventh pick for just whatever. You know, you know, for anybody if he's not going to impact winning. Um, you know, the, the other school of thought is okay. You know, we, we'd prefer to trade the pick. Uh, I'm, I imagine the Blazers have a, a list of players they would trade the pick for. But if you can't get one of those players, you know, then let's try to draft the best available guy we can. Uh, maybe he shows out in summer league and. and Builds value there, and we could trade them, you know, later this summer or even into the season next year. Keep in mind the trade deadline's not till February, uh, so those are the decisions that take place. Um, and, and, and you know, on draft night, that's why the best executives, the best teams, are flexible. I think one of the best recent examples of that is Golden State and the maneuvering they did with D'Angelo Russell first, and then uh, with Andrew Wiggins and the pick. Um, you know, I, I don't think that was something that they necessarily could have predicted in advance, but they gave themselves that optionality and flexibility and it culminated in Wiggins being maybe the second best player on the team that just won the championship. Yeah, that was a wild uh, turn of events, man. For him to turn into Maple Jordan after being, you know, somewhat disappointing in Minnesota, it goes to show you that, you know, Steve Kerr said that, you know, any, that the majority of NBA players could be impact players if they were in the right situation. Uh, Do you think that's true? It's not something that we discuss enough. Um, situation, role, fit. Um, and, and what I would say, Trista, is there are only a handful of guys in the NBA that, in my opinion, are that 1A alpha guy that, you know, you hang on the marquee, uh, you, you sell tickets, uh, they, you know, people come, visiting fans come to see that guy play. There aren't many of those guys. There certainly aren't 30 of them. And so if you're Andrew Wiggins, who, as you know, is his backstory, son of Mitchell Wiggins, former NBA player, one of the anointed ones from a young teenager. This kid was the number one player and potential NBA star. It's hard to live up to that pressure and those expectations, especially when you are drafted number one by Cleveland and then traded, you know, for Kevin Love to, to Minnesota and the Timberwolves and their fans expect that. So I just think of it from Wiggins perspective. Going from the guy who's expected to be the guy and lead Minnesota championships, um, you know, obviously the Timberwolves are well short of that. He gets traded, um, you know, as a quote unquote disappointment in the eyes of a lot of people to uh, Golden State. In fact, and if, if uh, you know, I'm not saying that's pick on Wiggins, but keep in mind that Minnesota threw in a pick that ended up being Jonathan Kaminga, the seventh pick in the draft, along with Wiggins, gives you an idea of his value at the time. Right. Uh, to now, he's the fourth guy in, in Golden. He's not the guy anymore. That's that, we know who that is. That's Steph Curry, the best shooter in the history of the game. Uh, but they also have Draymond Green and Clay Thompson, who are also head of the Hall of Fame someday. So now Wiggins can just be himself. He can just play his role. He's not the focal point. He's not the guy that everybody in the media and the fans wants to hear from. He's not the center of the defensive game plan. In fact, he's probably not even the second or maybe probably the third guy in the game plan when you're playing against Golden State. And he's thrived, you know, so like, I think that's what Kerr is referring to. It is yeah. situation, it is opportunity, and the teams that usually win have that, you know, 1A alpha guy at the top, and then everybody falls in line behind him. I think one of the most complicated evaluation decisions, I guess, of this draft seems to be Chet, right? Chet Holmgren from Gonzaga, seven-footer, uh, elite shooter, elite shot creator, elite passer, defender, Really good shot blocker, probably one of the the most unique unicorn type players that we've seen. So they say, right? But he's 195 pounds, has all the tools. Uh, I guess my question to you is: Do you think that Chet's frame can functionally work at the NBA level with this full toolbox of skills if he does not put on another pound? No, he, he needs to add weight. And, and this is why one of the reasons why the job is so hard. I think 
at least in my opinion, clearly Chet Holmgren has the most upside of any player in this draft with his size, his length, his shooting potential, his shot blocking. I, I think he blocked three and a half shots a game yeah. in 26 minutes. Um, you know, he can be a unicorn. But is he going to be healthy? Is he, is he going to make it, so to speak? And we've seen guys um, with unusual bodies. Um, you know, I don't want to scare anybody, especially Orlando Magic fans, but Greg Oden yep. uh, you know, broke down. Um, you know, recently there's some questions, I think valid questions about Chris Tepp's Porzingis and his long-term health. Um, you know, is, is Chet going to be one of those guys, or is he going to have a successful 10- or 15-year uh, career? And honestly, Trista, that's part, part of the reason the job is so hard, that as an executive, you really have to rely on your medical staff, your, your doctors and trainers, sports scientists. Uh, I imagine the Magic in particular, probably OKC as well, has put Holmgren through a battery of tests and gotten his medical information and, and dissected it. And, and it, it really, it's a, like anything else, it's a projection. Is this guy going to hold up? Is there anything chronically wrong with him? And then it's, you know, it's like building a house with his frame. How much can you add to it before it potentially crumbles or falls apart? Um, yeah, so I think those are legitimate questions. Let me put it this way. I think if Chet Holmgren's body were, you know, solid, like he'd be the number one pick for sure. Um, but I think that is a legitimate question and a reason why you may see Jabari Smith go off the board if Orlando doesn't want to take that risk. Uh, last last question about Jaden Ivey. Um, for him, my... I guess, and what I've read too, what I've seen, what I've read, is that he has a ton of skills physically, right? But and very explosive athlete. But the the one question mark is his decision making ability. And a bet on him is really truly a bet on whether you can develop him into being this really good decision maker, a playmaker, and find the ability to to drive and kick well, right? He's made some pretty bad shots in the tournament, kind of taking bad twos and threes when he can make the open look. Um, so I guess the question is, how do teams evaluate on the front end uh, whether a player you can you can do that with them and whether they're they're capable of getting better on the IQ and decision making side. Yeah, a lot of it's the the in person scouting and the film work. You, you know, you really want to get technical and break it down, uh, especially the pick and rolls. As you know, that's such an important part of today's NBA game. Yeah. Um, and, and then it's decision making. And one of the things we did when I was GM of the Suns is when we met with players, uh, we would pull film clips of their games and then have them talk us through what they saw, what they were thinking. You know, obviously there's some good plays mixed in with some bad plays. You want to see how a player thinks the game and how, how he you know talks through it. Um, and then you also, frankly, you have to evaluate the whole roster and the coaching staff and things like that as well because if a player was used a certain way before getting the NBA, but you're not going to use them that way, uh, keep in mind, usually, as you, as you know, Trist, especially compared to, to Big Ten basketball at Purdue yeah. with Ivy, uh, the NBA game can be faster. It can be more open. Uh, it's actually less physical. I think that's yeah. counterintuitive to some people, more but there's space. less contact on, on the ball handler. Um, so that's part of the reason I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of Jaden Ivy. I really like the kid's potential. I think with the NBA now with hand checking basically disallowed, whereas a defender, you can't really put your hands on a guy. I think it's going to be really hard for people to stay in front of that kid. And that's why, you know, I, I see shades of John Morant. You're right. The decision making has to improve. Uh, I see flashes of a young John Wall. He just moves at a different speed with the ball. And given his background, too, keep in mind his mother in Yale uh, was an excellent player, uh, coach with the Grizzlies, now the head coach in Notre Dame. This kid's, a, you know, comes from an athletic family and a basketball family. And, and, and watching him play and seeing him interviewed, he seems like a pretty sharp guy. So for me, just from afar, I, I think he'll be able to figure it out. I think he has a lot of things you can't teach. And he seems certainly smart enough and willing to learn the things you can't teach as an NBA team. One follow up. Is that what you saw with Devin, Devin Booker? 
Uh, some similarities. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, you know, Devin didn't have the freaky athleticism. He had the right. beautiful shot. Um, I, I think what stood out to us more than anything, Trista, was the competitiveness. I mean, we saw the shooting at Kentucky, in Kentucky, but then when we brought him into our gym for a free draft workout, the hyper competitiveness, he didn't want to lose a drill. Nobody could stop him. And then when we did some two on two or three on three in particular, uh, you saw some of the ball handling and playmaking that if you go back and watch the high school film, it was there, but that was not his role at Kentucky. So that's part of the reason the job is hard, right? If, if you just watched him with the Wildcats, you say, well, he's an excellent catch and shoot player. What else can he do? Well, he was first-team All-NBA guy. He can do a lot, but uh, that wasn't obvious at the time. Uh, really, that pre-draft process helped to solidify that he was the guy, and luckily he was there at 13 in the 2015 draft. Yeah, it's interesting how situations sometimes can throw teams off the scent. I think Duke is really good at hiding players um, to what they can be. I think Paolo could be a star. It just was kind of used in a in a different way than maybe he'll be used in the NBA. But awesome stuff. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate you giving me a plethora, a swath of your very valuable time. I hope we can do it again soon. Anytime, Trista. Always great to be on with you. Thanks so much. Appreciate that. That was Ryan McDonough, former GM of the Phoenix Suns, assistant GM of the Celtics, former international scout, current Odyssey NBA and basketball insider. Awesome stuff. Like, I'm going to go back and listen to that and listen some more. So I'm, I'm really happy that he gave us his time. I actually am out of time. I got to run as well. I'll give you guys some more post-draft insight, uh, quick wild cards, things that I think might or may not happen. Um, I still have some things I want to say about Pat Baldwin and Shaden Sharp and Jeremy Soshan and, and some others. But thank you to our guest, Ryan McDonough. He was very generous with his time. Uh, find us on the podcast if you want to listen to that back wherever you get them. That's the Heat Check. Uh, that is all the time that we have for Heat Check. We will be back Friday with a live episode recapping all the draft news. Follow us from Heat Check as the season comes to an end and free agency begins. Do not forget to download, subscribe, tell your friends, every single one of them. Please follow us on social at, at this Heat Check and at Trista Crick on TikTok. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts.